Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Philippians chapter 2, where my Bible is opened up. And I'll invite you to be getting a Bible and be finding Philippians chapter 2 as well. Let's be like those noble Bereans that we read about in Acts 17, who searched the Scriptures to see if the things that were being taught were true and correct and in keeping harmony with what the Word of God teaches. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 2, let me just echo the welcome that Seth has already extended. It is so great to see you all on this beautiful Lord's Day morning and a very special welcome to our guests. Got lots of folks visiting from uh, a number of different places and we're so glad that you're here. You honor us with your presence. Just what a delight it is to be in this good assembly today as we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. If I could do just a quick commercial for what's on tap this evening happening in this pulpit. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, we spent a great deal of time uh, in the morning and in the evening worship hours uh, discussing and trying to answer what it is that non-believers have to say about things like the existence of God, about the inspiration of Scripture. We tried to offer lots and lots of different evidence that is designed to try and persuade even the most ardent skeptic. The question I want to entertain this evening is, is what if the skeptic that you are dealing with is living in your own home? What if that skeptic is your own child? What do we do whenever our own kids, teenagers in particular, start having doubts about those very things, about the existence of God, the inspiration of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, all those sorts of kinds of things? I hope you'll be back tonight. I hope that everyone, even if you don't have kids or you don't have teenagers, I hope you'll be here tonight at 6 o'clock as we try to think about some things that will help parents, that will then in turn help our young people to establish a faith that is certain, even as we live in an age full of doubt. That's tonight. About this morning, though, we look at Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, for those of you that are in my Wednesday night Bible class, I hope these verses are still fresh on your mind because we just read them this past Wednesday night. I'm reading in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. As many of you already know, last Tuesday afternoon, I found myself in the emergency room of Lake Cumberland Regional Hospital doing my very best impression of Epaphroditus. Now, while I was not actually ill near to death, I must tell you, I certainly felt like I was ill near to death. After writhing in pain for the better part of three hours that afternoon, and a good portion of that three hours was happening right here in this church building, it was determined that I had a kidney stone, two millimeters in diameter that, to my knowledge, I still have not yet passed. It was, and I say this without any embellishment at all, it was the sickest I have ever felt in my life. It was the most painful thing I have ever experienced in my life. 
And never having had a kidney stone before, you might imagine what was going on in my mind that afternoon. I didn't know what was causing all of this pain. In the beginning, I was trying to Google and trying to figure out what organs are on this side of my body. I don't even know. Could this be an appendicitis? Could it be my pancreas? Could it be you know, an alien trying to pop out of my stomach? I didn't know what was happening. And of course, as I'm trying to sort through and process all of those questions, at the same time, I am desperately trying to get situated into a position that will provide me at least some momentary amount of comfort. In fact, if you were to have come here to the church building, you would have probably noticed I was in the bathroom wallowing around all over the floor there. And as all of that was going on, I did what I guess most anyone would do in that circumstance. I prayed. I did, and I did that praying out loud. Again, if you had come here to the church building between the hours of 1.30 and 3 o'clock, you would have heard me from that men's bathroom loudly and audibly saying, Lord, please help me, please. I feel like I'm dying here, Lord, help me. Well, thankfully, I didn't die. And even more thankfully, the Lord did give me some relief because by the middle of that afternoon... The pain subsided, and praise God, I felt really like my normal self ever since. Now, of course, for someone like myself who's never really had any kind of serious health issues, in fact, I could not even remember the last time I had ever been to the doctor uh, prior to Tuesday, uh, going through an ordeal like that, is, even if it was just for a few short hours, it can be a bit of an eye-opener. In fact, it caused me to think long and hard about some things that I really had not given much consideration to before, at least not on a very personal and individual level. In particular, I entertained that thought of, what if God had said no to my cries and to my prayers? What if God had denied in that moment, what if He had denied my request for healing and for relief? You know, that question, the big why question about that, that really is a question that probably has been asked ever since the beginning of time. In fact, you've probably known people who have lost their faith in God entirely because God did not heal their loved one. God did not answer that prayer in the way that they had hoped He would. But in many ways, that question of why would God not heal someone who is sick, that's really a question for which we cannot provide any definitive, solid answer. We do not always know the specific will of God about a person's health. And of course, it really doesn't do us any good to sit and speculate on that kind of question. But you know, there's another question I've been entertaining, and really it's kind of at the other end of the spectrum. It is a question for which I do believe there are answers. And if you will indulge me just this one time, for this month's question and answer, normally I take questions submitted from you all. This month, I'd like for you to indulge me and let me be let me be a little bit selfish here. I'd like to take a question submitted by me. Because instead of asking why don't people or why some people don't recover from illness, what I'm wondering is, is I'm wondering, what if Christians always did recover from illness? That whenever a child of God got sick or broke a bone or got a kidney stone, that if you prayed to God for healing, it always happened immediately. And I don't just mean some of the time or even most of the time. I mean every single time that asking God to provide healing for sickness, that it was as certain 
It was as certain as asking God for the forgiveness of sins. Think about that. Think about that verse in 1 John 1 verse 9. The certainty of that passage. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know the promise of that verse, don't we? We know that if we repent, if we confess our sins, God is going to forgive. We don't have to say, if it be thy will, Lord. No, we know that is God's promise. And so I'm wondering, what if, what if healing from physical sickness and pain, what if it worked in that exact same way? Where we know that every single time a Christian calls out to God for healing in time of sickness and pain, that He's going to do it. He's going to do it instantly. He's going to do it always. That God's children are always granted recovery. What would that be like? I don't know if you've ever entertained that idea. What would that be like? I'll tell you this, a lot of stuff in the Bible would be really, really different if that was the case. Paul would not have bothered telling Timothy to take a little wine for the sake of his stomach. No, Paul would have just said, Timothy, just pray. Just pray and God will heal you from that. Or whenever Peter showed up at the house of Dorcas, there at her deathbed, and all the widows are standing there in the room, Peter probably would have rebuked those ladies and said, What are you doing? Why didn't you pray for this sister? She could have been healed and she wouldn't have died. What would happen if Christians always recovered from illness? You might be thinking to yourself, you're trying to kind of picture that idea. You might be thinking, well, well, that would be awesome. That would just make life so much better. That would be great. Yet I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the answer to that question might not be as great as you would expect. This morning I want to share with you three implications of what would happen if Christians were guaranteed to recover from illness every time they prayed to God for healing. Are you ready for that? First and foremost, if Christians always received immediate recovery and healing from illness then what that means is, is that means that we would have a whole lot of people becoming Christians for the wrong reasons. You know, if this is the way that things really worked, I just don't think it would take very long before folks started kind of putting two and two together to see how they can maybe kind of work this system to their own advantage. Would you find John chapter 6 with me? Just work in the Gospels for a couple of minutes. In John chapter 6... This is the day after Jesus had fed the 5,000. And of course, after that amazing miracle had occurred, people are looking for Jesus. They want to find Jesus. And so they come ready to follow Him. In John chapter 6, read with me in verse 25. In John 6 verse 25, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, all it took was one free meal for these folks to figure out, hey, let's hang around this guy. Let's see if he can make lunch for us again. You know, wouldn't that really be similar to how things would be if Christianity promised that you always get better? It wouldn't take long for folks to start noticing, boy, those people down there at the Church of Christ... They don't ever seem to go to the doctor. I don't ever see them going to the doctor. I I think I'd like to go down there and get some of whatever it is that they're having. Imagine having a conversation maybe with your coworker, and they're kind of complaining and going on about the ever-increasing premiums for health insurance. And you chime in and say, yeah, I don't even have health insurance. 
And they say, what? And you say, nope, don't need it. I'm a Christian. Whoa, tell me more about this Christianity thing. Or imagine you're out here on 27 and you're involved in a terrible car accident. I mean, bodies are, are maimed and bones are broken and blood is everywhere. And the ambulance shows up and the EMT gets out and they come to you to try to do some medical procedures on you and you say, ah, don't worry about me. You go help some of those other people over there. I'm a Christian. I'm going to pray about this. Lord, please bless me here. Oh, I feel so much better. I think I'll go to work now. What would that be like? Folks are going to notice that. People are going to figure all of that out. Preacher walks into the leper colony or goes into the tuberculosis ward or goes down to the AIDS clinic and he says, Hey, who wants a Bible study? I'm telling you, there'd be a lot of folks interested in a Bible study there. They want to know about the Bible. They want to know how to become a Christian. I want to get some of that heal me now action. Now, I don't mean to be trite about all of that, but I think people would get interested in Jesus really, really fast. In fact, what had happened is, we'd need a much bigger church building. We'd need a way bigger church building to accommodate all the people that'd be interested in Jesus. We'd probably need to build two or three extra baptistries to get all of those folks baptized. And somebody might be thinking, well, man, sound about that church just busting out at the seams, growing like that, lots of people being baptized. That would just be great. That'd be wonderful. Really? Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that when Jesus heals people of sickness, He sometimes feels and seems almost uncomfortable with the notoriety and the fame that that brought Him. Look in Mark chapter 1, for example. In Mark chapter 1, let's just stay here in Mark for a minute or two. In Mark chapter 1, here's one of the first miracles that Mark records. In Mark chapter 1, and in verse 32, in Mark 1, beginning in verse 32... That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he, that's Jesus, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed. He went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. How about that? Jesus doesn't seem to want to be known as the miracle worker and as the healer. In fact, if you'll stay right here in this same chapter, drop down to verse 43. We get the account of Jesus healing the leper. Verse 43, Jesus sternly charged that man and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. Jesus tells this guy, don't be going around telling everybody what I did. And of course, what's the guy do next? He goes and tells everybody what Jesus did. And the result of that, verse 45, is that Jesus couldn't even go into town without people coming to Him wanting more healing. But you see, Jesus didn't want people to follow Him simply because He could heal all of their physical ailments. Jesus wanted people to follow Him because they were interested in God. Because they wanted to know God. Because they wanted to know more about God's kingdom and be a part of that kingdom. Yes, it is true. Jesus is the great physician. But He came to heal sick souls, not sick bodies. If you're still in Mark, just drop on down to chapter 2. In chapter 2, the story is there of the paralytic man that is brought to Jesus. You remember that story? He's lit down the roof by a couple of his friends. I want you to notice that before Jesus ever deals with this guy's physical problems, 
What's the first thing Jesus deals with? Mark 2 verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. You see, sin is what seemed to be the most important issue to the Lord, not physical health. Now you might be thinking to yourself all along here, Josh, I really don't care why people come to church. I don't really care why they get baptized. I don't care why they follow Jesus, just as long as they do it, right? Well, you know what? You ought to care why people follow the Lord. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, she just married him for his money? Oh, well, who cares? Come on, they got married, didn't they? That's what really matters. No, it does matter. You don't marry somebody just to get something. No, your motivation there, that matters a lot. And this morning what we need to see is that Jesus does care about why people follow Him. Your motive matters. You know, Jesus could have accumulated to Himself a huge following if He had told everybody, hey, pick up a rock and I'll turn it into gold. Jesus could have did that. How many people would have came to Jesus? Everybody would have come flocking to Jesus. Jesus could have had everybody following Him, but they would have been following Him for all the wrong reasons. So Jesus did not do that kind of thing. Not ever. To Jesus, your motivation for being a disciple, it matters. In fact, Jesus speaks to that in John the 12th chapter. Would you find John 12? In John 12, Jesus speaks, kind of foreshadowing what was to come. He talks about His crucifixion. Something that, in all truth, would have been repellent to many people. The idea of a bruised, mangled, bloody body. And yet Jesus says about that in John 12 and in verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, the reason that we become a Christian is not to to get something. We become a Christian because we realize that we are broken by sin. We realize that we cannot fix that problem ourselves. And so we turn to Jesus. We look to the cross and we get the healing of the soul. It's not about the healing of a cold or the flu or a toothache. Which is why I would suggest to you this morning that if Christians got better every time they got sick, then it would end up creating the very problem that Jesus tried so hard to avoid while He was here upon this earth. Not only that, but I would tell you secondly, that if Christians always recovered whenever they got ill, then the fact of the matter is, we would all be a lot dumber. That's kind of a harsh way of putting it, but it is true. Because whenever we are sick, we are able to learn some things that we're just not going to learn any other way. And the Bible actually bears that out. Can I give you a couple of examples? Look in the Old Testament with me. Look in 2 Kings, please. In 2 Kings chapter 20. In 2 Kings chapter 20, I'm reading here about the good and great king Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a problem. 2 Kings chapter 20 tells us about that. 2 Kings 20 beginning in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. He was actually at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. What's Hezekiah going to do? Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. 
That sickness resulted in Hezekiah seeking after God. Not that Hezekiah wasn't seeking after God, but caused him, I believe, to seek after God even more earnestly. Let me give you another illustration of that, kind of at the other end of the spectrum. Look in Daniel, please. In Daniel chapter 4, this is Nebuchadnezzar being talked about here, a wicked king, a godless king. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he's actually going to be going through some mental illness. He loses his mind and begins behaving like an animal. Well, why exactly does all of that happen? Why does that befall Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4, begin with me in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn something. In fact, the text goes on to tell us in verses 34 and 35, drop down to verse 34, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking now, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar learned something that he desperately needed to learn, didn't he? He learned that during a time of affliction. That's what it took for him to learn that. The noted author C.S. Lewis, he once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. And He speaks to us in our consciences. But He shouts at us in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that is absolutely true, isn't it? That we are able to learn some things when we are sick that oftentimes we are just oblivious to when things are going well and going hunky-dory. Now, I want to be clear here, and I want everybody to listen very carefully. I do not believe that God causes all sickness and all suffering. I want to repeat that. I do not believe that God causes all sickness and all suffering. Nor do I believe that it is helpful for us to go to someone who is sick and, and is suffering and to say, whoa, God's got you enrolled in the school of sickness and suffering. Boy, you're going to learn faith 101 here. Boy, that's just going to be so good for you. No. It's not helpful for us to say. That's not a good thing to say to someone. But I would say this, even though God does not cause all sickness and suffering, God is most certainly able to use sickness and suffering to teach us some valuable lessons. And those lessons may be unwanted on our part, but many times they are what is most needed on our part. Would you look in Luke the 15th chapter please? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells here three Powerful parables about lost and found. In Luke chapter 15, the third of those parables is about a boy who gets lost. Well, when does he get lost? Does he get lost when things are going really, really poorly? No, Luke 15 tells us that he gets lost when he's prospering. 
In Luke 15, I'm reading here beginning in verse 11, Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Verse 17 now. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Isn't this, isn't this in some way for all of us, isn't this our story? The truth of the matter is, as long as things are going good, we are perfectly capable of just kind of just rolling right along, completely oblivious, completely ignoring God, when maybe what we really need is we need to feel pain. We need to feel pain like the prodigal son felt pain so that we will then come to our senses and go running to the Father. You just stop and think about it. When did Americans start flocking to church? Was it during the economic boom time of the 1980s? Or was it after that terrible Tuesday of 9-11? You see, adversity and affliction, it will cause people to stop and to think about what it is that is most important in life. I have known people. I have known people for whom a cancer diagnosis was the very best thing that ever happened to them because it caused them to stop and to consider the road that they were walking down. It caused them to think about their relationship with God. It caused them to think about their own mortality and whether or not they are ready to die. You know, Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's a lot that we can learn from going to the house of mourning. But you know what? There's also a lot that we can learn from going to the doctor's office. There's a lot that we can learn from going to the ER. And I'm not just talking here about the idea of getting right with God. How many of us here this morning, how many of us during time of sickness, that time of sickness drew us closer to the Lord? You know, when the doctor comes in and says, we've done all that we can do. We've done all the treatments. We've done all the medications. We've done all the surgeries that we can do. I'll tell you what, in that moment, you learn a dependence on God that you're not going to learn anywhere else. In fact, isn't that what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 12? Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul speaks here about his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. There's lots of speculation that maybe it was a physical ailment. After my episode on Tuesday, I think it might have been a kidney stone. It was calling inside, thorn in the flesh over there. He wanted it to depart. Isn't that what we want the kidney stone to do? To depart, get out of us? But you know, whatever that thorn in the flesh was, it taught Paul some stuff about the Lord. The kind of thing that pushed him and can push us beyond just kind of cliche sort of praying to where we are actually at a point where we are truly seeking after God. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote in verse number 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. 
Three times I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do you ever learn that if being weak is never even on the table because all you have to do is pray and bang, sickness is gone. The thorn is taken away. How do you ever learn that if you don't go through some pain? Can I add to that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1? In Philippians chapter 1, Paul knew about the pain of being in a Roman prison, the pain of being chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he says about all of that in Philippians 1 and in verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to, desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I love that. Paul says, it doesn't matter what happens to me, I know that I am going to be okay. If I get out of this adversity, then that means I'm going to serve the Lord. And if I don't get out of this adversity, then that means I'm going to go and be with the Lord. Either way, Paul says, it is all good. Let me just ask you, how do you learn that kind of contentment if there's never any adversity at all? We just shoot that quick prayer up to God and He removes it immediately. How do you ever learn that kind of contentment? You know, I must tell you this morning that the school of sickness and suffering... It has a high flunk-out rate. I've known Christians, and I'm going to assume you've known as well. Christians who get angry at God and they quit because of the suffering that they endure in this physical body. You know, God let me down. I prayed to Him. I asked Him earnestly about that. My Aunt Bertha, she was sick. She was on her deathbed. She had lots of years left to live, and God was nowhere to be found. I've known people who just completely walked away from the Lord. But you know, even as I say that, I have also known Christians who have gone through unimaginably difficult circumstances, terrible diseases, terrible sickness, and they have bore up under that pain. They have bore up under that sickness with such courage and with such faith and with such perseverance. And as a result, they were a bright and shining light to the rest of the world. And of course, the more that they got sick, the closer it seemed that they drew to the Lord. Their relationship with God was so deep and so rich and so full that when you saw it, you thought to yourself, you know what, I would gladly trade my health to have that depth of relationship with God. If that's what it takes, Lord, give me that. Through their sickness, they came to know some things that you just can't learn any other way. And in fact, some things that you would never ever learn if all better was just a prayer away. Now I will freely admit to you this one, this point, and this is the reason I put it in the middle. This, this is hard. It is hard for us to admit 
that sometimes what our walk with the Lord really needs is a little bit less prosperity. We need a little few, a few, few less blessings. In fact, what we need is a big dose of adversity in our lives. You know, I really don't know of anybody who prays for that. Lord, please let me get sick so that I can know you better. Never heard anybody pray that prayer. And in fact, we don't want to pray that prayer. But the truth is, God can use adversity and sickness and pain to teach us many times the things that we need the very, very most. All of which then crystallizes with this third and final idea this morning. And that is by thinking just a little bit about where it is that we're headed. Because if Christians don't ever get sick, or if Christians, when they do get sick, they just immediately always get better, then I have to wonder, how do you ever die? How do you ever get from here to heaven? You know, I think about this whenever I think about maybe a brother or a sister in Christ who is very, very aged, lived a very, very long time, been faithful to the Lord for a very long time. And they are very, very infirm. They are very, very sick. And someone, maybe a family member or maybe a close friend, maybe somebody in the congregation, is just really, really insistent that we pray for that brother or we pray for that sister that they get better. And sometimes that makes me wonder if we really even understand what's going on here. Do we remember what Hebrews 9.27 says? Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for all to die. The Bible does not say that Christians get a pass on that. If the Lord should tarry long enough, we are all going to die. And you know, it seems we say that, preachers spout that, we say that verse at funerals and so forth, and it seems that we're all fine with that truth in kind of an abstract sort of way. That is until a doctor comes and says, your mom is going to die. Or your husband is going to die. Or maybe even when a doctor looks you in the eye and says, you are going to die. Then all of a sudden it's, oh Lord, oh Lord, let's let's do that healing thing again here. I need to be healed. Mom needs to be healed. My husband needs to be healed. Where exactly are we on all of that? It makes me wonder, what is our thinking about heaven? You know, I wonder sometimes if maybe our lives here on this earth are just so laden with comfort and with luxury that we're just really not interested in that life that is to come. Because we have a hard time imagining, as that beer commercial would say, we have a hard time imagining that life could get any better than this. And so what we're just mostly interested in is staying here. But the Bible tells us that it gets much better than this. And it doesn't matter how good the technology or the science or the medicine gets. It doesn't matter how long the medical community is able to keep our bodies functioning and pumping and beating and doing. We are not made to live here forever. Because God has made something better for us. We are made for more. Much more. Now I'm pretty reluctant and I I want to be careful here. I'm pretty reluctant to somehow act as if death is our friend. Because the Bible teaches that death is the last enemy. And that it will be put down and it will be destroyed, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the truth of the matter is, death was not always part of what God intended. Adam and Eve, they lived in that garden of paradise. They had complete access to the tree of life. 
The tree of life. Death was not what God had envisioned for His creation. But of course, we don't live in that world anymore, do we? We live in a fallen world. A world that is full of sin, wickedness, misery, and despair. And so part of that fallen world is that our bodies, they age, they wear out, they get sick and diseased. So that at some point, our earthly temporal body, it will come to an end and it will give up the soul that is contained within it. How sure, let me ask, How sure are we that we would always want to interrupt that process? How sure are we that we would always want to prevent that from happening? Would we really want to do that? You know, this morning as I've been talking about prayer, I think I've kind of been talking about it in a, in a crass sort of way, kind of been talking about prayer like it's the, like it's the genie in the lamp. You know, we're going to rub the lamp. And we're going to make God do whatever it is that we ask Him to do. We're going to rub this lamp and we're going to tell God, God, this is what I want, now you have to do it. Instead of letting God decide what's best for us, no, we're going to decide what's best for us. God, I want Grandma to get better. God, get on it and get on it right now. You know, sometimes when I, sometimes when I go visit folks who are sick, particularly once again, whenever it's an aged brother or an aged sister, And I go in and maybe I offer to have prayer with them. Or maybe I tell them, hey, lots of folks have been praying for you. Lots of folks have been praying that you're going to come out of this and you're going to be returned to 100% health once again. Sometimes I wonder if inwardly that brother or that sister, what they're saying is they're saying, stop rubbing the lamp. Just stop. I want to go. I'm done here. I want to go and see the Lord. I'm ready to step in to eternity. Have you ever thought about that? You know, that's really the beauty of leaving all of those decisions in the hands of God. That's what Paul said, didn't he, in Philippians? Paul said, if I stay here, then I'm going to be serving the Lord. But if the Lord chooses for me not to stay here and I'm going to be executed for my faith, then then I'm going to go and be with the Lord. I'm going to leave all of that, though, in God's hands. And isn't it great that that is what sickness ultimately is? It is in God's hands. You know, there is no passage of Scripture that says, when a Christian gets sick, you pray, and God has to heal them. No, that's not found in there. It is in God's hands. He gets to decide because because He knows best. That's what makes Him God. Sometimes what we want to do is we want to try to pull that power back away from God. We want that power for ourselves. We want to decide about that. And I understand that there are people that we want in our lives. We have loved ones that we need in our lives for various reasons. And so that's why we pray ever fervently for them to get better. As Paul said, I am hard-pressed to choose. Can't you see the beauty of letting the Lord make the choice? Because we are so finite. We're only able to see things through a very limited and narrow perspective. We're not equipped to decide that we're going to live here forever. As a result, we never experience what God made us to experience. That is being with Him for all of eternity. And so, would you go back to Philippians 2 where we started? Would you notice that passage again about Epaphroditus? Notice what Paul says again about Epaphroditus in verse 27. Epaphroditus did get better. I'm sure he was thankful for that, just like I was thankful when I recovered this past week. 
But look at what Paul says about that in Philippians 2 and verse 27. Paul says, indeed he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. You know, we do not always get to pray for somebody to just automatically get better. That's not how it works. Sometimes we pray, and yes, God has mercy. They recover, and for that we give God thanks and we praise Him. But sometimes we pray, and they don't get better. The question for us then is, what do we do in that situation? Do we get angry with the Lord and we shake our fist at Him, maybe even walk away from Him? Or do we maybe just take a step back and maybe think a little bit more clearly about why it is that people don't always get better whenever they're sick? You know, we sometimes sing that song, and I, if I'd have thought about it, I would have asked Cody to lead it this morning. We sing that song, When sorrows like sea billows roll, what Ever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Let me ask you, is that just a song that we sing, just kind of mindlessly chant those words? Do we believe it? We trust God that He knows what He is doing and that He knows when to have mercy on the sick, that when He knows when not to do that. Because He's God. And we are not God. Do we trust the Lord enough to say, whatever happens, Lord, whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of invitation. And that invitation song, and this part of our service, is designed to invite you to give some consideration as to where you will be when the Lord decides to bring you into eternity. That day, that day could be today. Please do not fool yourself with thoughts of, oh, I'm the spitting image of health over here, Josh. I'm spry and fit and healthy eating and healthy living. Boy, I ain't got to worry about dying anytime soon. Don't be thinking that. Do I need to say it again? That's in God's hands. He'll be the one to make that decision. Which is why it is absolutely incumbent upon each and every person sitting in this building this morning that we be ready at all times to be found at any time washed in the blood of the Lamb. A sinner who has been forgiven by the grace and mercy of God through our humble and heartfelt obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we help someone this morning to render their obedience to the gospel? Confessing faith in Jesus as Lord, being buried with Him in baptism, for the washing away of every sin. Brother or sister, can we maybe help you to live in a better sort of way, to live more faithfully and more devoted for the Lord, serving Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If there's anybody here this morning who is not ready for eternity, then this is the moment to get ready. Would you come now, right now? Make those wishes known while we stand, while we sing.